welcome to I Guess We're Grownups Now, a podcast about being a good adult. I'm your host, Carrie Halstead. On today's show, a conversation with Liz James, a mom, seminarian, and blogger. We discuss adult ADHD and all of the horrible awesome that goes with it. My initial interest in doing this episode came from reading an article in The Atlantic about women with ADHD. I'll post a link to it in the show notes, which you can find at goodstuff.fm slash grownups slash 16. I think Liz gives one of the best answers ever to the what's the best thing about being a grown-up question. I hope you enjoy as much as I did. Thanks for being here today, Liz. I'm so happy to have you. Um, And thanks for coming and talking about what could be a really personal uh, subject. I'm so excited when people want to talk about their personal lives with me. Me too. (laughs) Thanks for being here. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Well, um, I come from a family of six. I have a dad who has ADHD, although I don't think he has a diagnosis, but it's pretty clear cut um, at this point. Um, I'm a mom now myself. I have two older stepkids who are both grown, but I raised, parented them full time for most of their lives. And I have two younger children now who are nine and 11 and I blog and I'm a student. Nice. Very good. So we are here to talk about ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Tell us a bit about your experience. I mean, the whole episode is about your experience of it, not we're not scientists, we're not doctors, we're not psychologists. Um, tell us about your experience of it. When did you first realize that your brain works differently than other people's? Well, realizing your brain works differently than other people's and thinking of yourself as having a disorder are two different journeys, right? So all of us have growing up is a process of realizing the ways in which your brain works differently than everybody's because everyone has something, right? So um, the actual diagnosis happened when I was an adult, actually when I was done university. But knowing I was different happened really early on. My parents thought a lot actually about whether or not to have me diagnosed. ADHD was a really new thing. I was born in 1978. So early 80s, everyone was talking dyslexia. Nobody was talking ADHD. Uh, my parents had some concern around if a person gets diagnosed with a disability, are they going to use that as an excuse? Are they going to lean on that too heavily? Those kinds of things. Um, and because my dad had those same patterns, it was an emotionally charged issue to begin with. So I don't, I didn't have a diagnosis when I was young, but that pattern dates back really clearly. Like there's a story from when I was eight or nine and there was a gymnastics class and the teacher turned in the middle of the gymnastics class and he says, if you will be quiet for five minutes, I will give you $20. (laughs) And allowance was 50 cents back then. (laughs) And Someone was timing and it was about 90 seconds and then I was thinking about what I would buy and then I was all excited and then I said, (laughs) and then it was this moment of, oh. (laughs) So it was, I was pretty high over on this spectrum, extreme kind of kid, but I didn't think of it as, everyone said, you maybe should get diagnosed with ADHD. I didn't actually go in until I was out of university, actually. Um, I don't know a whole lot about ADHD. I don't think anybody in my family is, or if it is, it's undiagnosed. Um, um, but I think everybody has this impression that it gets thrown around a lot loosely. I feel like people say ADHD in the same way they say, oh, my OCD is acting up when they don't have OCD. Um, so, so it gets thrown at people who are disruptive, especially kids. Yeah. 
is, but it is a real thing. It's not just any time you can't concentrate your ADHD. Um, I don't mean you personally, I mean people in general. So is there a good metaphor for understanding what it really is versus what's just normal human normal? Typical, I guess is the right <laughs> word to use. Typical, uh, non-clinical human behavior? I think it is really complex because the whole question of is ADHD actually a specific disorder or is it just a continuum of human behavior, that hasn't actually been ironed out yet. And so I often think of it as like eyesight, right? So there's a huge spectrum of eyesight. Sometimes you reach a point where you need glasses. And then within that, there's also different kinds of problems with your eyesight. So um, with looking at my own ADHD, it's there's a spectrum and I'm way on the far end of it. So I'd be like, there's lots of people who are nearsighted and I'm just very, very nearsighted. Um, but there are also certain subtypes of ADHD where we can really tell that it's more like cataracts, right? Some, something very specific is going on, but we don't understand it well enough to be able to sort out the various types of disorders that are happening. And so there's this, this goal to say it's a real thing, um, but it's, it's like nearsighted, right? So someone will say, well, I'm nearsighted and I do fine. Well, I'm more nearsighted. So, I tend to think of it um, in terms of everybody's on a spectrum and are you far enough that you need adaptations? And if so, which adaptations? And is a diagnosis a useful tool in getting you the adaptations that you need? Right. And I don't get really tied into to what extent is it just a spectrum or is there a specific disorder? Because I kind of think it's both and. There's a lot of reasons to get diagnosed with ADHD. It could be the circumstances that you're in that are encouraging that way of being. It could be where you are on a spectrum. It could be something really specific going on that is just a small percentage of the cases that is like cataracts. Who knows? So that's how I think of it. That's a really helpful metaphor because, because yeah, you can see how somebody, the same person in different circumstances may or may not need help with dealing with coping. You know, a cowboy who's a little nearsighted, doesn't need glasses, probably. Um, but uh, a surgeon who's even the slightest bit, you know, vision problems, definitely need. Like you want, some people need to be on point all the time and some people don't. So this kind of thing can... It's not just about how much it affects you, it's also about what you're trying to do with your life. Absolutely, it's so situational. And we're in a situation now where we need kids to sit and listen for a lot of hours a day. And so the percentage of kids who are over on that end of the spectrum, that's a lot to ask of them. So it's like a certain percentage of people are short and we're in a place where all the knobs and switches are really high up. And so I had a lot more of a disorder when I was in school than I have since I'm out of school. I still have challenges, but school is a unique vulnerability for these kids. Um, so do you have any thoughts about what might cause ADHD or why it's, I mean, so why we have lots of diagnoses, having institutional ed education for kids is definitely a factor in that, why there's so many diagnoses, but is there a cause or is it just a, a thing? I think there might be some, some percentage of it where it's like cataracts where there's a specific thing going on. I think most of it's accounted for, it's just a bell curve and there's variation because when you think about the traits of ADHD, they're useful traits in a hunter-gatherer society and the conditions we evolved in. Having someone who's not always paying attention to the same thing as everyone and who 
manages risk differently and who is experimental. And that's not actually a real problem to have a few people who are like that as a benefit. So I tend to think of it as just part of normal humanness that's hard to fit into our current culture. Yeah. So the fitting in part, um, I know that to some degree there's a stigma attached to saying you're ADHD. How do people react when you tell them or do you tell people like right off the start? I I have ADHD. Um, I usually wait for people to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> you're acting weird. Oh, yeah, that's my ADHD. Well, I try to work it. Sometimes I work it into conversation. I'm more open about it now than I used to be because I was really um, – I was twitchy about that when I was first diagnosed. I'm aware of of a lot of people don't think it's a real thing. And and I wasn't sure it's a real thing. I think of it as a spectrum of behavior. Right. right. Um, so I was hesitant to say I can do that or I can't do that because of my ADHD. And I often leave ADHD out of the picture. So I'll be in a meeting and people will say, you know, Liz, can you agree to do that? And I'll say, yes, I can, but I need to email myself on my phone right now because... I will not be able to remember that 15 minutes from now. And I don't say because of ADHD. I just say because I will not. Right. And anyone who works with me for very long figures out that I mean what I say. <laughs> now, I've stumbled over my wording a few times. You are ADHD. You have ADHD. <laughs> You're on the ADHD experiment. Are there things that, in in an effort to be polite and civil and welcoming to people who struggle with ADHD, are there... Phrases, words people should, shouldn't use. Are there things, what, what's, I've, is there an accepted terminology in the community? And I guess it might change from place to place and time to time, but. I'm pretty sure there is, and I haven't been able to figure out what it is. Uh, <laughs> um, you'd ha you probably would not say you are ADHD. With most disabilities, people like to be considered the person who has, the person who has vision problems or the person who, um, so but that said, I say that all the time. By right. So to say I'm nearsighted <laughs> and there's no like, there's no pushback against that. Yeah. I am nearsighted. I, I am diabetic. I am asthmatic. Yeah. I know yeah. most people prefer to say I have. I'm a person with or whatever. Right. I often think of, of these things as about the relationship and the context. And if a person feels safe, the words won't matter even if you get them wrong and a person feels unsafe, they'll you'll constantly be back and forthing about the words. So I always think of these things in terms of relationships. Although I'm sure there are the right words. And part of demonstrating respect is learning what words people have asked you to use, but I haven't learned them all yet. Right. <laughs> or you did one time and they're then really I hard to keep track. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you never get tired of the ADHD jokes, too. Like, it seems... You know, I find them hilarious. <laughs> That's why I laughed. <laughs> I am sorry if anyone listening out there is listening to me joke about ADHD and finding it disrespectful. If you find say something I find offensive, I'll tell you and we'll go back and we'll edit it. Right. She said three things. <laughs> I edited them out. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> So can you think of, um, have you ever encountered people who like totally got it wrong? Has that happened to you? Well, you certainly encounter people who are pretty blamey about it. Um, people are often really blamey with parents about it. Um, and I mean, that podcast that you guys did, you did a little while ago about parenting more challenging children. Right. right with Megan. Really fascinating. Um, 
And as I was listening, I was listening to her describing her son and people saying, but he's not normal. He's not normal. And I once had a conversation with a friend who I really respect about one of my kids' things. And I said, is it normal? And he said, I can't answer that question until you tell me what it would mean to say it's not normal. So does that mean that he would get a diagnosis that would get different interventions that you might otherwise not get? Does it, does not normal mean it's causing a problem? Like what does not normal mean? And so um, it was just interesting listening to her describe someone saying he's not normal and wondering, well, what does not normal mean then? Does it mean it's not my fault? I can't deal with him. Cause we know he's a black diamond kid. If he were a ski run, there's the, the blue runs and the green runs. And this is clearly a black diamond kid. Right. Does that mean he has a disorder or he's just more challenging than the other ones? Right. He's the awesomest one. (laughs) (laughs) As I, I think parents struggle almost as much because there's this thought that, well, if you parented them better and, um, the kind of parenting that you associate with, well, that kid's just out of control because the parent is doing X, Y, and Z, the mistakes that I can see. Well, my mom had three other kids and they were all great. And yes, there are mistakes she made with me. There are mistakes you make with every child. There's supposed to be room for error, right? <laughs> and so I think that parents get a lot of that. And I think also with especially kids, teachers feel like really you've got to be able to do better than this. Make an effort. And because sometimes you can make an effort. Right. And it does work. Yeah. There's, so I think a lot of it has to do with around behaviors. And when people aren't able to adapt the way you're hoping they would, being a bit more understanding, I think that's the biggest thing more than how you refer to the disability. Yeah. 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 We, we seem to be a society where we seldom recognize when things are going well and acknowledge and talk about and reward or, or, or just acknowledge. Uh, and then we let things get a little worse and a little worse and we don't say anything. We just sort of suck up our end of it. And then when things are no longer functioning, then we blow up and say, you're not normal. Um, and I wish there was a way to, um, to have a two way conversation or a multiple way conversation before things got out of control. Um, Anyway, well, I, I could turn that question. I could ask that question of you too. You've got one of your kids is a bit more challenging to parent than the other one. Yeah. What kinds of things are helpful to you as a parent from the culture surrounding you? What's useful and what isn't? That's a good question that I should think about sometime. I'm just going to think about that for a second. I think framing independence as a positive thing is helpful. And I think um, focusing on things we share as opposed to what differentiates us, attributes that make people stand out, but um, sort of disregarding those, you know, are you a boy or a girl? Are you smart? Are you dumb? Are you athletic? Are you not athletic? Are you, you know, whatever. I think though, if you focus on, those it's less helpful than if you focus on um we have feelings and we have interests and we have um needs um i don't know if this is answering your question but sort of uh, coming back to core principles rather than dealing with symptoms is helpful to me do you find focusing on 
the good things as well as the more central point than the problem is that it is? Yes, although I, I'm hesitant. One thing I've noticed about people in general, this isn't just kids, but if you praise them for something, they tend to stop doing it. Oh, interesting. It's counterintuitive, but if you tell somebody, if, if I tell one of my kids, I'm really super happy you brought your dishes over from the table to the sink today. It's like they chalk that up as, you know, tick mark, done, mom's happy, so mom's satisfied for a while. Oh, like there's an account and they just put the money in. Yeah, and they don't have to keep going back to that. So I don't know if that means don't praise your kids. I I don't think that's what it means. But I think it does mean be careful about what you're focusing on as a positive and make sure that what you're focusing on, if if you acknowledge the positive, make sure it's the thing you really, like be really careful about what you're saying is the good behavior. Um, because if you don't, if they think it's something else, they're not going to do the thing that you actually invalued. They're going to keep doing the symptom, not, not the, core thing well and if it gets emphasized as a thing we do to please mom then that there's only some circumstances in which they're gonna do it right right yeah when it's not mom or when it's a stranger when it's a a waiter in a restaurant that you're supposed to be polite to but you've only learned to be polite to mom at home because she's the one whose buttons you have to push yeah i remember once saying to like my 13 year old he this is the one that was a green run kid he was so easy to parent so having all these other skills from one of the other ones that was more challenging, I didn't have to lay down the law very often with him at all. Like it was mostly discussions and then he just did the right thing because that's who he was. And at one point there was something that was pretty illogical, but I needed him to do it. I said, I'm laying down the law because I'm your mother and you got to do it. I'm your mother. And he looks at me and he goes, okay, he says, I will do it because you're my mother. And then he narrows his eyes and he says, but there's not a law, infinite money in that account. I am doing it just for no other reason than you're my mother and it's lo- it's illogical, but... Don't try this again. Don't keep doing this all the time. <laughs> That's awesome. Which is fair. I mean, there is limited money in that account. It is in the reverse, too. You can only do so many things because I'm your son, please, before I would say... Well, right. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about uh, ADHD and your experience of it a little more. Um, what are some things you do in your life to make life easier for yourself, given ADHD? I was, I was trying to think about this, and I was trying to separate out the things that I do for ADHD reasons from just being me, and it was right. really hard to do. <laughs> oh, right. And I think um, as I was thinking about this question, I was like, like, what makes me think I don't have ADHD? And that the survival mechanism, I mean, I'm super organized because that's how I get things done. Um how would you tell the difference between things you do and from things I do when I'm, I don't, I'm not ADHD. I don't have ADHD. Um, but for example, you've already mentioned emailing yourself things, yourself things. There's a lot of, there's a lot of strategies. So I can answer the question. Um, it took me a while to tease it out because if I were to say to you, what are, tell me about your day as a woman, there are some things you can definitely pull out as female things I do because I am a woman. (laughs) And then there are other parts that are really woven in. So um, I have a lot of structure. 
as a result of ADHD. So it, it in a lot of ways, it does dominate how I do a lot of things. So I need to wake up at the same time. I need to exercise. I need to have sunlight. I use medication on most days, not every day. Um, and then right after exercising sunlight, medication, protein, that's when I get all the tasks that there's no way in hell I'll be able to do them any other time done. Right. So that's when I get done the tasks I know are most challenging, more creative tasks I do them in the afternoon. So there's this whole structure that I have to things. And then a big part of it is looking at it as a system. And so when I keep having the same problem over and over again, I say, how could I change the system? So I used to scrapbook and I would go and I would scrapbook and I'd have a great time. And then when it was time to pay for the supplies I used, I would just walk out of the store and steal. <laughs> and I can try to learn to be a better, not absent-minded person, or I can think of it systemically. I would walk in the door and I would give my car keys to the woman behind the counter. I would still attempt to walk out and steal. I just wouldn't right. get very far. <laughs> and I would come back. And say, Matt, please have my car keys and pay for the stuff I took. <laughs> so we do a lot of things systemically. If I make uh, a rule for my kids that will require me to enforce something, we know that's not going to happen. And so it becomes, you may have this if you do X and then ask me at this time. Or um, when there's something really, really important that I need to make sure, like he has to take his antibiotics or the infection in his leg will cause him to die, was one. And I'm going home thinking, I really love my son, but I'm not going to remember that four times a day. Right. <laughs> and so we told him, we made ways that I knew I could count on him, which is kind of a little bit too much weight on your kid's shoulder, but it's got to be done. So he got to stay up an extra 20 minutes, if you remember the bedtime one. Well, no kid is going to forget that. <laughs> right? And we'd put it on his bed and we had all these different strategies. So a big part of it is just about calibrating, about knowing what you will and won't remember. And then living your life accordingly. And so learning to predict what you will and won't be able to do. The other really big thing that a lot of people don't recognize is making use of the positive symptoms. Because we always think of what makes this child a pain in the ass in a classroom is the first image. Um, one of the best images to think of for ADHD is the character Maria from The Sound of Music. Oh, yeah. So when we went to see that play, my husband Gary's sitting there and he goes, oh, my God, He's, she's exactly like you in every possible way. And one of the things about her is she's actually quite lovable. Like, she makes you want to punch her in the face, but also give her a hug. Right, right. And ADHD gives you a little bit of that capacity to... I think evolutionarily it's linked to people not killing you. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so remembering to make use of that, remembering to have really strong relationships so that other people can and want to help you and making sure you do lots of kind, giving creative things that are easy for you to do to give back in those relationships. Right. So, so much of it is about context and finding the right spot, which is, I think, true of every person. When you become an adult, that's the great thing about being an adult. True. You get to find the context that makes you a superstar instead of elementary school where everybody has the same thing. Yeah. I don't think most people um, think consciously about it, though. I think mm -hmm. most people just react to instinct and what works and what doesn't work without thinking. Have you gone through therapy? Do you... like? Well, it was in counseled? therapy. It was in therapy when they first said I was um, for school. Part of the process is you do a therapy thing. Yep. And the woman said, "Yeah, it's really worth getting this diagnosis." And so I went and and did that. And so then after I had the diagnosis, I did some reading up. And uh, one of the guys who I really like says the two best treatments for ADHD are marry the right person and have the right job, which I think is actually 
for all of the adults, good advice. Right. <laughs> yep. But because people with ADHD don't fit into what you're supposed to be like, it's especially important there. Right. So uh, just like exercising is a good idea for everybody, but it's really critical for certain people. Right. Um, so I was very intentional that time. And that's one of the gifts of ADHD is it forces you to be intentional. And everybody should, just like everybody should exercise, but some people put that extra effort in because of some feature of who they are. Mm-hmm. A brief break to talk about our sponsor. I Guess We're Grown Ups Now is sponsored by Campaign Monitor. Campaign Monitor makes it easy for you to create, send, and optimize your email marketing campaigns. Design beautiful emails in minutes with their easy-to-use template builder. Send more relevant emails by displaying content that caters to your individual subscribers. And best of all, your emails will look great on any device. With their new feature, Automation, you can easily build workflows to get the right email to the right person at the right time. Emails can now be automatically triggered by someone joining a list, a specific date, or an anniversary of a date, or by site or blog updates. Thanks to Campaign Monitor for supporting good stuff, and I guess we're grown-ups now. How do you feel about using medication to manage ADHD, both for yourself and for kids? Do you have opinions on that? We are not doctors. <laughs> I am not a doctor, and I do not understand the ins and outs of the medication. Yeah. Um, often the people prescribing it also don't understand all the ins and outs of it, because it's usually a GP. Um, I take medication. Um, I found that over the long term, I haven't been entirely happy with the way that it sort of changes how I think. I feel like I have a little bit of a dependency on it, which I haven't been thrilled about, but there's lots of really good things about it. Um, I take Ritalin, which has the benefit of it's been used forever. Right. So we know a lot more about what happens in the long term than we would in other things. Um, I have a son who has uh, the same personality that I have. And if I wanted to get him diagnosed, he would be diagnosed. And I may do that. He hasn't needed it yet. Right. He's, I've been teaching him strategies and he's a really good kid and he loves his teachers and he's smart otherwise and he's doing okay. Um, so he's obviously not on medication. I often think of it, if you have, um, say, back problems in, I don't know if it's true in this city, but in a lot of cities, you'll get referred to the back clinic and you'll see a physiotherapist who will say, try this, try this. And you'll see an occupational therapist who will see, say, let's change your environment in this way. And mm -hmm. you try all these different things. And at the end, you try back surgery, which you're trying to avoid because it's a bit of a crapshoot. <laughs> um, and so I often wish the way we managed ADHD was to say, you're having trouble paying attention. Who knows disorder or what, but it's causing problems. So let's start with, these are tools for your teacher. These are tools for your parents at home. These are tools for teaching you. Have all these interventions. If it doesn't work, then we use the medicine when the other things haven't worked. Yeah. Um, I feel strongly about people starting with, my kid will never go on medication. Because it might be that you're putting your child in a really awful situation if they're just left to flounder instead. Right. Um, I think that we're under an obligation to understand the child's world and what effect medication would have. I totally understand people looking into it, coming to understand it and saying, I don't think it's worth it in this case and right. we're do this instead. Um, but starting from a paradigm of no medicine, as well as starting from a paradigm of, oh, well, let's try this medicine. Right. I think we, we owe it to our kids to have a more nuanced approach than that. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so that said, I do use medication, particularly when I'm in school. And then I also use other strategies to try and limit my need for medications. So they can. Such as? Sunshine and exercise are huge. Uh, when they look at the idea behind the medication is you're increasing the level of dopamine in your brain, which makes it a little easier to focus. Uh, well, there's lots of things you can use to increase your dopamine. Exercise is a huge one. Um, sunshine, getting a lot of sleep, those kind of things all make a difference. Some of it is you just try things out and figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, but you can look at the neurochemistry and see why it's working that way. Some people believe that ADHD is a disorder of low dopamine. Um, there's also, you can look at brain scans and say people with ADHD, their brains differ in these ways. And they're thicker here and smaller here and there's more activity here or not. I'm not as excited about that kind of research because brains always differ, right? If you're very musical, the musical center will grow. And however you are, that shows up in your brain. It's like if you do a lot of push-ups, your pectorals change. Right. Yeah. We're physical creatures. So that doesn't prove anything to me. Yeah. Um, but if you give a person extra dopamine using something like Ritalin, um, you give them a leg up on being able to focus. Right. Similar to, I suppose, a lot of people t take vitamin D because they don't get enough sun should if you live in Saskatchewan. Oh it's my really goodness, important. totally. <laughs> but the, um, it's really interesting because I was reading some studies about dopamine and its effect. And if I were to give it to you, this is a common question people have, mm -hmm. right? Well, everybody Ritalin would help them focus. Right. In double blind studies um, that I've read, and I'm not an expert, um, it does actually help most people focus. The difference being, if we're both sitting in a math lesson and the teacher's saying, the quadratic equation, blah, blah, I'm hearing it like a static radio, right? I'm hearing a sentence, and then I'm thinking about kittens, and then I'm hearing another sentence, and then I'm thinking about the window. And and if I'm smart enough, I'm able to piece it together and get a lesson anyways. Um, if not, I'm stuck. Well, if you're hearing the whole lesson, some medicine to make you concentrate better won't actually change anything because you were able to hear the whole lesson. Now it's about your ability to understand math. Right. Right. So it does actually affect the ability to concentrate of everybody. But it doesn't make you smarter magically. Exactly. Right. So a stool makes everybody taller, but if you can already reach the items on the top shelf, it doesn't matter. Right. Sweet metaphor. Right. <laughs> um, so we've talked about um, some of your major challenges. What... What do you see? What are your biggest struggles in life? What, what are your, what challenge? What makes life hard for you in relation to ADHD? I think the hardest thing was to stop thinking of it in terms of shame, mm. and um, because in my parents' relationship it was a cause of so much struggle for my mom. Like they had a note to remind my dad to open the garage door before backing the car out. <laughs> right. And they didn't have a lot of money. So every time he broke something, it was a big problem. And yeah. he forgot things. When we were kids, we would have quarter, like we would have a quarter in our shoe. And we would, um, that was for when dad forgot us. And he would regularly forget us. And we would call and he would come get us. Right. And it was fine. They equipped us with skills. Yeah. But that's the level of, my mom calls it, forget him and lose him. <laughs> <laughs> that my dad had. <laughs> right. And I think that some of that frustration got displaced onto me and she sort of it was kind of like someone trying to pray the gay away like she'd be like please you gotta and she'd have this frustration she used to send me out with winter coats 
And I would lose them. I would leave them behind. And she, kid, how, what the, how do you, and there's only so many times you can buy your kid a winter coat, but it's Saskatchewan. Right. You can't just, you can't not. Natural consequences and send them out. So she said, I hope someday you have a child. And then Anthony comes along and he forgets his winter coat, like three or four. Of them. So first of all, we have enough money. I can go to Value Village, buy a bunch of really hideous coats and he just uses them disposably. And then every now and then I walk across and pull them all out of the lost and found. But the other thing is because I understand ADHD, I got him a coat that was knitted, like it was crocheted. Yeah. And I explained to him about how it was filled with love and the whole story and it has all these pictures on it and I got it secondhand from Value Village for $6. Yeah, yeah. But it's a character in his mind. Really? So he's never lost it. He takes it and he brings it home and he's, it's a sweater. And then in the winter, he insists on wearing it over top of his other coat. Right. Because someone knitted it with love and it deserves to be seen. <laughs> That's amazing. So he won't forget it because it's a human and he thinks in humans, but it's harder for him to organize objects. And I know that. And so I can change how I interact with him because of that. Yeah. So for me, though, my mom didn't understand it at that level. And she was just so frustrated with... Because when I forgot, she saw it as meaning what it would mean if she forgot. And if she forgot, it would mean she didn't care. Right. And so getting over, I forgot an appointment. I forget appointments a lot. I forgot. And it's awful, this feeling like you're always going to have to be apologizing for something yeah. constantly. And I forgot an appointment and I, a friend was with me and I got in the car and I just looked so upset. And she said, you know, it's not like you beat someone, right? Like... <laughs> This is not uh, that level. They're gonna charge you. <laughs> They'll for charge the missed you, appointment, or they won't. Or, but this is not a deep human trauma level. Right. Of, but because it was for my mom. Well, right. And I know how I feel when I forget something. Yeah. Like, right. If that happened to me all the time, there's a big shame. It would be mortifying. Apologizing yeah. all the time is hard, and so you have to learn to try and minimize the situations where you take on something that will mean an apology. Right. And you have to learn to live with that that shame. Right. And try not to let it sink deep. Treating it like um, like a condition you have as opposed to a personal failure where you're letting people down. Yeah, but that's, that is an internal process because you can't say, I'm sorry, I have ADHD. I forgot this appointment. Right. That's why people get annoyed at people for saying they have ADHD. So you just, you can't do that. You just say, I'm really sorry. I did the best I could. Yeah. And with people that are close to you in your life, you make sure it's really obvious that you're doing everything you can. Right. So you own it in every possible way. And then you say, please help me set up the world in such a way that I can put in enough work to succeed. But I do the work. And so for my partner, the halfway that he meets me is making it in such a way that I can take responsibility. I'm not going to be able to take responsibility in the way he does because our brains just work differently. Wow. Wow. He's a really patient guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, so what would your advice to somebody who finds themselves married to or parenting someone with ADHD who doesn't have a history themselves? What would be your advice to them? Well, the first thing is no matter how awful it is for you, remember it's more awful for that person. Mm, yes. Um, and read up on it. Understand what they can do and what they can't do. And the other thing is to think of yourselves as a team and a system. So you're a team against the ADHD problems. And so you always look for not you ought to be able to remember this, but how can we set up the world so that you don't have to? 
Right. Um, we do a lot of trading jobs, anything to do with um, money or forms that have to be done on time or whatever. It's just his job, period. I don't even try. And then I take on other things instead. He doesn't know where the vacuum is. Some of the time I don't know where the vacuum is either. But, <laughs> but I lose the vacuum a lot. And it's huge. And our house is really small. And like three times I've lost this vacuum. I replaced it one time and then I found it under a bed. But anyways, um, it, you'd think right. that. But if you lose the vacuum and the vacuuming doesn't get done, nobody dies. The taxes, it's different. <laughs> right, right. So we think of ourselves as a as a team that way. And to look for my partner's strategy is... He looks for the things that are exciting and wonderful in me. Remember once I preached a sermon and a friend of mine, as I was sitting down afterwards, um, my friend turns to Gary and says, you know, she says she has ADHD and then she pulls off stuff like that. And when Gary told me later, I thought it's because I have ADHD that I was mm. able to pull off that particular kind of awesome. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and so Gary does a lot of looking for what makes it exciting. Like one time, we uh, got stranded in Minneapolis. Eric always says, it's fun to travel with both of my parents because with mom, I get surprise vacations. <laughs> so this time it was not my fault. <laughs> it was an airline reason. So we're stranded in Minneapolis. I'm calling Gary. I'm like, I'm sorry. I've got these two little kids. And as he's about to get off the phone, he goes, that's okay. You'll make it a party. Right. And I thought, oh, yeah, I will. And so we had this surprise vacation in Minneapolis airport that became exciting because I can make anything exciting. It's interesting to watch how in our family, it's Gary's job to make sure that things don't suck and to think ahead and to prepare, which is a different skill set from being able to ride the wave of it. So then in the moment when we've tried and it all well, hell breaks loose anyways, you can see it. It's like he's passing me a baton. Now it's time to turn it into a party. This is your show. <laughs> when the basement flooded, when we had bed bugs, he's like, okay, I don't know how we're going to live with these bed bugs. Bed bugs. Ah! And I ran the bed bug parade because I made it funny. I invented songs. I was in charge of making us not want to burn the house down. And that is a skill set of people with ADHD because they live a life in which you always want to set them on fire. And so they've learned this set of skills for coping. That's a valuable thing if you recognize it, if you're able to do a give and take where totally. he's responsible for making sure we don't get the bed bugs. But if we do, <laughs> I can make a bed bug party. Right. And presumably while you're doing that, he's off getting rid of the bed bugs. Well, I actually did the getting rid of the oh, bed bugs. Oh, good for you. Because I was the one at home all day, but... I don't know. We can't talk about bed bugs because I'll have nightmares tonight. Sorry. <laughs> Done lice. That was more than enough. Uh, do you have a community... Uh, where you go to to share your ADHD-related experiences. Like, I know that having a, some sort of community of understanding people, even if they aren't people you'd normally be friends with, is helpful. Do you have that kind of community for yourself? I have understanding people because I don't try to be the kind of person who would be in relationship with not understanding people. So I am very much, this is how I'm going to manage it. I'll do the best I can, but, and... The kind of people who can't live with that aren't friends with me. Hmm. I don't have an ADHD-specific group, although it's interesting. Um, I'm a seminarian. A lot of the work that I do is within um, religious contexts where they're thinking a lot about doing church differently and different structures and blah, blah, blah. So there's a group of um, eight of us who are mostly seminarians who um, formed this group of eight that's doing this different kind of interesting thing, which is not the point of the story. But we're at this minister's retreat and I look up and in the middle of this business meeting, these, there's this row of us 
coincidentally, all of us, I looked up because I was going over there, are standing behind the chairs, bouncing up and down, bouncing up and down. And part of the reason we formed that group was because we are really bored by business meetings, right? So we're, we were trying to sit and listen and participate, but we just couldn't. So we've got this row of us. It's like this apartheid where we're bouncing. And, and then I thought, well, that's interesting. And I realized that of the group of eight, half of them have an active ADHD diagnosis. Huh. And so we sorted because we were the people who got bored by sitting and listening to a sermon for 20 minutes into this alternate structure. And one of the ministers is formerly a psychiatrist. And I said, you know, it's interesting that this group, and he goes, yeah, that's why you're able to think outside the box and do what you're able to do is because of the, so it's interesting how you do find the people. And when you find each other, you say, oh, great. What are your tips? (laughs) And you exchange and the diagnosis is really helpful for that. Um, and even if you're the kind of person who thinks I'm AD-ish or ADHD-ish, find people with ADHD and ask them what they do is so helpful. And then you can tell them what your usual problems are and they'll say, well, I know that this might work for that. Interesting. So the diagnosis is useful even for people who don't actually consider themselves right. having it. We're all looking for organizational tips. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you could be a good consultant. I would forget my appointments with the people. And that's particularly a problem with an organizational consultant if they always forget the appointments that does not go well. No, I suppose not. <laughs> Interesting. Um, what do you think the worst thing about being a grown-up is? There's all these toys that I really wanted to buy when I was a kid, and now I have the money to buy them, but they're not fun anymore. So it's like this unfulfilled, that this was the only thing I could come up with. <laughs> so I drive past these toy stores, and I'm like, I can buy all those things I used to list that I wanted to buy. But you never can because if you buy a Barbie doll when you're 37 and you take it home and you look at it, yeah, it's you just think about gender and body image and it's just not <laughs> the same experience at all. So these toys are ruined forever, and it's like it's like this totally tempting thing because you could physically buy them, but you really can't have them. Oh, that's sad. It's very sad. Makes me wonder about what I'll think about when I'm 65, about when I was 40. Like, what what will be the things? that I wish I could do now. Like, is retirement going to be this huge disappointment? Because, oh, this has turned dark suddenly. I never thought of that. Because I'm, you know, I think it's awesome now, but I can't do it. But when I get there, it'll be like, yeah, it's actually... Some people hate retirement. Some people do. Uh, I don't know. Okay. Appreciate it now then. Yeah, I guess. I guess. (laughs) Appreciate your vision of retirement. (laughs) Appreciate that you have work to do. But I can't imagine running out of work to, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what is the best thing about being a grown-up? Oh, being able to choose your context. Explain that. You alluded to it a little bit earlier. So, Well, when you're a kid, there's one way that you're supposed to be a kid, good kid. This is what being a good kid looks like. And you're. I remember coming in one time to when I was helping out at the school and they had written across what makes a good person and underneath it was you know they sit and they listen and they cooperate and which is really interesting because when we boring yeah and when you say to a child you're that is a good kid right people will say that on airplanes they i don't know why airplanes people say to me your kid is so good good doesn't mean good he could be a psychopath that tortures kittens they mean convenient interesting which is very different from good and sometimes those are two opposite things so um there's such a defined, this is the context you're in, and this is what it means to be successful when you're a child. And if you're lucky when you become an adult, you get to pick your context, and you get to pick to have a life in which the things that are most exciting and wonderful about you are the important things, and you've found a way to make those other things irrelevant. 
Whereas in school, you have to be reasonably good at math. You have to be reasonably good at. And so you're, if your child is getting 40s in math and 95 in English, we worry about the 40s in math. We want everybody to get up to this mediocre standard. But in real life, as an adult, it's the 95s that matter. You find a way to make the 40 irrelevant. Right. And so that ability to choose your context and to have where you really shine be what really matters. Yeah. Be as good as you can be, not avoid as many failures as possible. The obituary never says she was mediocrely good at all of these parts. It says these are the amazing things that this person did. And, right. And inevitably there's these failures. Yeah. Martin Luther King was not a very good husband. <laughs> That's not what we remember him for. Or a very good dad. Well, nobody who does these amazing things is good at all the other things. Right. So you you can give and take and choose how you fit into the world. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that is a really super thing. I think that we should all take advantage of that more. I think there's a temptation as an adult to try to remain that good person, the good wife, the good mom, the which really just means convenient for other people. Very much. Instead of actually starring at what you're good at and forgetting about the stuff you're bad at. When ADHD is a real gift because I noticed when I went on medicine that now I had the ability to do things for four or five hours a day that I should never have been doing in the first place. They were boring and to fit in and be helpful and blah, blah, blah. And it used to be that I had to find a way to only do an hour of that a day right after I exercised, right? So people who can choose to do boring, unfulfilling grudge work then sometimes get stuck doing it. When you have ADHD, you can't choose to... If, when I was in um, university, they said there was a form that I was supposed to fill out. And if I filled out the form, I got $5,000 every year. Never filled out the form. You, you wow. just can't. And for someone who doesn't, you can't understand how that would have occurred. Right. <laughs> totally. I never filled out this form. I mean, I can understand, but only in a very theoretical, <laughs> theoretical way, right? But... It's because I can't force my brain to, I have to tease it, flashing lights, make it exciting in some way. That leads to a pretty interesting life if you're not physically able to do the boring things because then you're not doing boring things all the time. Interesting. That reminds me of when I broke my arm for the second time playing (laughs) soccer (laughs) and decided that that was the last time I was doing laundry and cleaning bathrooms. Even though my arm healed, I took that opportunity to delegate to my husband Who's a house husband? It's his job. Um, and yeah, and that was a major improvement in my life. So I, wow, that's really interesting. Uh, right. And there was, and, and I, by doing those things, I was being the good housekeeping wife, but, but it was just convenient for him in a way that didn't need to happen. I mean, we're functioning much better now, in my opinion. I'll have to have him on sometime and talk. <laughs> That's true. I don't really want to know. <laughs> it's working well. <laughs> See, and the things I hate, I can't do. Yeah, one of the examples was when we went to Kenya and we saw how little stuff they had. And we realized that the 3,600 square foot house with all the stuff, for me, that amount of stuff, organizing and cleaning, it's like a person in a wheelchair in a house with stairs. right? And so we moved to a two-bedroom apartment which condo, which is still plenty large. It's a large two-bedroom condo with way, way, way less stuff because I physically can't keep that many items ordered. So it's like a diet. I just like, like a diabetic is about sugar. I can only have so much stuff, which in some ways is a disability. And you don't have to have that because you could own more stuff, but you still actually do still have to spend the time taking care of that stuff. And I don't. Yeah. So there are these advantages as well. Yeah. Kind of like laundry. You reach a 
critical breaking point where you're like, oh, nope, it's the wrong direction. Turn around, go back the other way and do something that's more manageable for what you're capable of doing. And we all need to have those broken arm laundry moments. Totally. Yeah. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? Rebelwithalabelmaker.com is my blog. I don't blog directly about ADHD that much, but you can certainly see it bleeding through. <laughs> um, I blog about all kinds of things, mostly life. Nice. I believe we had a link to your blog on an earlier podcast, the one with Megan, your, uh, right. your open letter to, I'm going to... Susan Bibbo. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Awesome. Check it out. We'll have a link in the show notes. A real problem with ADHD is lack of impulse control or ability to have transparency, which makes the blog really interesting. I suppose. <laughs> very entertaining to read? Yes, very entertaining to read. Excellent. That's all that we care about. <laughs> cool. Thanks awesome. so much for being on. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Yay, I'm glad you had a good time. And that's the show. My thanks again to Liz for joining me and to our sponsor, Campaign Monitor. Show notes for today's show can be found at goodstuff.fm slash grownups slash 16. You can find me on Twitter at grownups underscore FM. The podcast is also on iTunes where you can subscribe for free so that you get every new episode when it comes out. You can also rate and review the show if you like it. A reminder to check out other great shows on the goodstuff.fm podcast network, including Transmission, our morning show, and The East Wing, where Tim Smith talks to interesting people around the internet. Thanks for listening. See you next time.